Well, it gives me much pleasure to introduce this lecture in celebration of John Milton's birth 400 years ago. And saying that, it occurs to me how rarely we use Milton's first name. Perhaps because the single word Milton has become such an icon, not only of one of the greatest figures of English poetry, but of England herself. Certainly our founder, the poet Kathleen Raine, considered him to be one of the greatest poets of the English imagination. And to give his, uh, his thoughts and reflections on John Milton this evening, we are fortunate in having with us Jack Herbert. And Jack is a fellow of Temenos and is probably best known to us for his lectures and books on the poets and philosophers of the German tradition. However, his interest, and indeed a strong connection with Milton, has remained with him from, since he first studied Comus uh, as a schoolboy. On going up to Cambridge, he was taught not only by a Milton scholar, but as a student of, at Christ's, found himself at Milton's own college. While still at Cambridge and studying Blake under Kathleen Raine, Jack tells me that Milton kept popping in and out. I think he meant of the conversation, but I cannot, I can imagine how keenly his presence must have been felt. For Milton's presence has been felt not only by Blake and his exponents, but also by one of the, by the great figures of English and indeed European literature ever since. But I'll leave all that to Jack. So let's give him a warm Uh, ladies and gentlemen, just before I begin, <coughs> there are two points. You have two handouts. The one on Milton and the Civil War is really for simply for you to take away and mull over at your leisure because it tries to make uh, Milton's complicated relationship during this period and before he was crumbled uh, Latin sectary for a number of years um, a little bit more approachable. The only the, it, the other handout that you'll be or that I will use this evening, and I will tell you, uh, these are quotes from Eliot, from Milton, South, and so on, and um, I will just briefly read the numbers um, when they come up in my talk. Um, secondly, and finally, I thought I'd bring this and, and pass it around. Um, there was um, rather a good ex um, exposition in the Cambridge University Library last year of things appertaining to Milton. And indeed, the university put on a series of five or six lectures on him uh, by quite a number of, of um, very interesting and distinguished academics. So I thought I'd pass this around. Okay, thank you very much. Now, with the quarter centenary of Milton's birth last year, it's more than appropriate, I think, that we at Temenos. Um, particularly in the light of what um, uh, Jill Lyne has told us about Kathleen Raine's great admiration for him, that we try and assess his role and significance as one of the supreme poets of the English imagination, 
whose influence has been immense even when revoked, as in the case of Keats and his composition of Hyperion. Um, and Milton today seems to be more back in fashion than perhaps at any other time since T.S. Eliot and the Cambridge School of Criticism tried to dislodge and demote him as one of, these, uh, as one of this country's very finest poets. <coughs> Milton, then, is a controversial yet seminal figure in the field of uh, both English studies, poetry, and culture. Also because of his alignment with the Puritan cause and with the culture of the court. The upshot of which was that Milton's poetry was by contrast viewed as, <coughs> excuse me, as being high-minded, though solemn and containing nothing of court sophistication, at the level of linguistic complexity and ironic uh, um, juxtaposition, uh, such as was found to inhabit in its own way the world of the wasteland. Thus a so-called line of wit was found to run from Ben Jonson, Thomas Carew and Marvell to Pope, say, with some roots back in Shakespeare and other Elizabethans, leaving Milton high and dry, as well as the Romantics and Victorians, um, until we pick it up again with Eliot, so that for the Cambridge critic, um, F.R. Leavis, Milton remains that heroic figure, a large yet anomalous landmark outside the mainstream of English poetry, with, quote, his moral theme being held simply and presented with single-minded seriousness. Eliot again, coming from his early and prolonged study of Dante, of whom he says that, quote, Dante's is a visual imagination, goes on to maintain later that, quote, at no period is the visual imagination conspicuous in Milton's poetry, stressing instead the um, auditory imagination, which he believes stems from the poet's weak eyesight and love of music. Uh, quote, no, quote number two, the most important fact about Milton, for my purpose, is his blindness. I do not mean uh, that to go blind in middle life is itself enough to determine the whole nature of a man's poetry. Blindness must be uh, considered in conjunction with Milton's personality and character. It must also be considered in connection with his devotion to and expertness um, in the art of music. As a result, T.S. Eliot argues, um, to, this is number three, to extract everything possible from Paradise Lost, it would seem necessary to read it in two different ways. First, solely for the sound, and second, for the sense. This strikes me as being especially bizarre. <laughs> and certainly not as, um, as not conforming with my own or indeed other people's reading experience. But it does illustrate Eliot's own theory of there having been a so-called dissociation of sensibility during the 17th century and Milton's apparent part uh, in all this. Uh, quote number four. In the 17th century, a dissociation of sensibility set in from which we have never recovered. 
And this dissociation, as is natural, was aggravated by the influence of the two most powerful poets of the century, Milton and Dryden. This famous statement um, both suggests that Milton and Dryden were somehow victims of an overall cultural dissociation as well as themselves massively contributing to it. The upshot of all this is that Milton's verse is presented as being radically split down the middle with thought and ideas on one side, music and magniloquence on the other. In terms of the latter, he is then demoted to a line of mellifluousness incorporating Spencer, Shelley, Tennyson, and Swinburne, which um, is um, then opposed to the major so-called line of wit. As for Milton's thought and ideas, these are dismissed as being unworthy of Lewis's phrase, solemn study. Um, the giveaway adjective indicating that such study is inappropriate to thought as heavy-handed as this, which is simply viewed as unwitty, um, hence not intelligent, a key mm -hmm. adjective in 1950s Cambridge. Uh, with Paradise Lost and Paradise Regained in mind, both epic creations, it is clear that we have an attack on what was known as the grand style, something which particularly attracted the Victorians, as in Tennyson's description of Milton as, quote, that God-gifted organ voice. Not that Milton's influence on the Victorians was at all uh, especially positive, uh, inculcating simply a penchant for sublimity and uplift so different from the Romantics' interest in creating epics of the inner world, as with Blake and Shelley. Apart from responding to his figures of rebellion, for example, Satan in Paradise Lost, but this is the fault of the Victorians themselves for not being galvanized by Milton's ideas. On the other hand, going back to T.S. Eliot and the Cambridge critics, Milton was also accused of a lack of sensuous particularity in his poetry. As Eliot puts it in his 1936 essay, vis-a-vis -vis Shakespeare in Macbeth, is quote number five, in comparison, Milton's images do not give this sense of particularity, nor are the separate words developed in significance. His language is, if one may use the term without disparagement, artificial and conventional. This critique was then taken up elsewhere and applied in a fairly blanket manner. The first critic scholar to reject this approach and reply in its own terms was Christopher Ricks of Oxford in his Milton and the Grand Style of 1963, who argued that the Miltonic style does possess its own kind of precision and particularity and isn't incompatible with sharp concrete realization, Leavis's phrase, drawing on some insights of William Empson um, Rick shows via commentary and analysis that the verse of Paradise Lost, say, can't simply be dismissed by pointing to, quote, Levis, the, the inescapable monotony of the ritual, the stylized gesture and movement, mere oratundity, or a concern for mellifluousness. Um, and whereas earlier scholar critics, such as C.S. Lewis, tended to come back at Eliot and Levis by maintaining 
that their principles of judgment were too narrow or wrong-headed, thereby setting up two separate categories, Ricks attacks them on their own ground. By accepting their principles of sensuous particularity and sharp linguistic realization, but finding that Milton's poetry does indeed possess these qualities, at least in terms of its own subject matter. Now, in his prose work, um, Iconoclastes, Milton himself says that <clears throat> an opponent shouldn't rely on, quote Milton now, the plausibility of large and indefinite words to defend himself at such a distance as may hinder the eye of common judgment from all distinct view and examination of his reasoning. And from this, Ricks correctly implies that the poet himself wouldn't in the least object to being judged by Eliot's and the Cambridge School's criteria, which is precisely what Ricks does. Thus he argues that the poet's style isn't merely grandiloquent and sonorous, <coughs> in Eliot's terms, um, the arrangement of words being for the sake of musical value and, for, and not for significance, but sensitive, discriminating, loaded with meanings, imaginative and dramatic. Rix's argument then goes on to consist of good practical critical exercises on various passages from Paradise Lost, paying a lot of attention both to the poet's syntax and especially his verbs. The new critics having tended to ignore syntax and concentrate on precise imagery instead. In fact, Rix's concerns here would seem to fit in more with modern linguistics. T.S. Eliot and the Cambridge School with a more modernist and perhaps symbolist approach, minus, however, the, the transcendent auras um, of a Yeats, Rilke, or Valerie. Indeed, stripped of these and with its stress on concrete particularity, it looks now more like a form of English empiricism, which has no direct relevance to Milton's world. Nevertheless, <coughs> and strangely as it may seem, we get, according to Samuel Johnson, above all, um, quote Johnson, his play on words, as Milton's play on words, in which he delights too often, as in Book Nine of Paradise Lost, O Eve, in evil hour thou didst give ear to that false worm, where there is an obvious play on Eve and evil and echoes of the fall in false. Then again in Book One, where Satan is first um, addressing the fallen angels, we find, we find this. This is on your sheets, uh, number six. But he who reigns monarch in heaven, till then as one secure sat on his throne, upheld by old repute, consent or custom, and his regal state put forth at full, but still his strength concealed, which tempted our attempt and wrought our fall. Where the play on tempted and attempt, which fuses the idea of enticement with that of endeavor, and which with um, um, uh, that immediately preceding suggests, as it were, divine duplicity in, but still his strength concealed, 
isn't at all the wordplay of the metaphysicals, of course, but that of theological irony in terms of key concepts and themes. Yet none of this is taken up by either Eliot or the Cambridge School of, uh, um, um, of Criticism. <coughs> Instead, they concentrate on attacking the organ voice, um, remembering perhaps Matthew Arnold in, quote Arnold now, he is our great artist in style, um, our one first-rate master in the grand style, so that one wonders whether they aren't rather reacting against a purely Victorian Milton um, um, backed by the Victorian cult of, of sublimity rather than Milton himself. For the Milton of the Romantics of Blake, Byron, and Shelley was primarily the creator of epic inner worlds peopled above all by figures of rebellion uh, with Satan as archetypal romantic hero. Thus Blake could write in The Marriage of Heaven and Hell praising, as many have felt since, the dynamic um, presentation of the early scenes in Hell um, from Paradise Lost as, a, as opposed to the inevitably blander later scenes in Heaven that, quote Blake now, good is the passive that obeys reason Evil is the active springing from energy. And famously, quote number seven on our sheets, note, the reason Milton wrote in fetters when he wrote of uh, angels and God and at liberty when of devils and hell is because he was a true poet and of the devil's party without knowing it. <laughs> it is here clear that whatever the nature and accuracy of their interpretation, the Romantics were supremely um, interested in Milton's ideas, not simply his sublimity. Um, they were, for instance, especially taken with the poet's new and powerful upgrading of the mind vis-a-vis -vis external reality, which in its awareness of the separation between the two anticipates the future dislocation characteristic of the Romantic age. Um, as in the following key passage, spoken by Satan in hell towards the beginning of book one. It's the, it's the passage beginning, farewell, happy fields. And this is interesting uh, because this is the title chosen by our founder, Kathleen Rain, for the first volume of her autobiography. Anyway, Farewell happy fields where joy forever dwells. Hail horrors, hail infernal world, and thou profoundest hell, receive thy new possessor. One who brings a mind not to be changed by place or time. And now the two final words, uh, lines which are crucial. The mind is its own place, and in itself can make a heaven of hell a hell of heaven. For the Romantics, and indeed for the succeeding modern age as a whole, in its discovery of and research into psychology and psychiatry, with their analysis of psychic states of mind, this speech provides a seminal text. It expresses the indomitable sense of an individualism capable of asserting itself against the most negative of environments. Um, and periods of time, 
Indeed, if you take this passage as it stands, uh, together with the figure of Satan as a whole, it is highly instructive to make a comparison with the Shakespearean hero of the tragedies um, and some of the later plays, such as Macbeth, Lear, and Prospero, say, who extricate themselves from their respective uh, quasi-medieval social webs on their way up or down. And the same is true for the so-called villains implicated in these tragedies, Sir Iago, uh, Claudius in Hamlet, Antonio, Prospero's brother, and the usurping Duke of Milan. In all these cases, as elsewhere in Shakespeare, if with immense variations of pattern and procedure, there is always an overall picture of individuals vis-a-vis -vis the social web. Uh, whereas in Milton, as here in Paradise Lost, the web has receded to the point of disappearance, uh, with Satan now the complete outsider. Culturally <coughs> and historically, one can see the connection, the response, if you like, to Tudor Elizabethan forms of aggressive um, individualism, such as were based on readings of Machiavelli and Francis Bacon, and can be pinpointed in the activities of monopoly holders and merchant adventurers. These were stretching, even fracturing, the framework holding uh, medievalizing Tudor society together. So that earlier medieval negatives, like pure ambition, the ruthless pursuit of upward social mobility for its own sake, or the relentless uh, pursuit of, uh, uh, um, or the relentless accumulation of wealth, goods, and property was seen to be sprouting up everywhere, hence characteristic of the new and altering times. This is essentially the world of Shakespeare's plays, um, and, and, um, and the world he so powerfully dramatizes, yet laments and fiercely criticizes, whereas Milton's begins on the other side of this, under the, um, under the Stuarts, James I and Charles I, where their relationship to Parliament becomes more and more fraught um, to the point of antagonism and no return. Just think of the long Parliament, 1640 to 1660, with the splitting of Parliament in 1641 into two parties, the Episcopalians um, and the Puritans with civil war breaking out the following year. Charles I was then tried <coughs> me, and executed, as we know, in 1649, with the Commonwealth being set up until 1653. After such kinds of antagonistic division and separation, any sort of traditionally uni unified society incorporating sets of long-established values could not anymore be used as a reference point as in Shakespeare. As an instance of what we get, even as early as 1634, the date when Milton's mask Comus was first presented at Ludlow Castle to mark the inauguration of the Earl of Bridgewater as Lord President of Wales, the play's um, sense of action is sharply dualistic, uh, being largely that of, quote, this ominous wood, where Comus himself and his um, uh, large, uh, um, where Comus himself and his rout of monsters 
have a stately palace, um, scene of um, enchantment, seduction, and captivity, as against the mask's conclusion set in Ludlow Town and the President's Castle. Clearly, the two very different terrains with palace juxtaposed against castle are um, deliberately contrastive. Moreover, the sumptuousness of Comus's palace, quote, set out with all manner of deliciousness, as the stage directions put it, and its uh, conscious appeal to the senses with its soft music and tables spread with all dainties is undoubtedly being offered, um, at least in part, as a mirror image of the extravagance and wealth associated with the Jacobean and Caroline courts. Indeed, the mask itself as an art form derived from Renaissance Italy primarily as a lavish court entertainment involving poetry, music, song, and dance, as well as stage spectacle and magnificent costumes. It was the long collaboration of Ben Jonson with Inigo Jones from roughly 1609 to 1631, which determined the whole path of the mask in this country. Jones designed all the complicated stage machinery um, and brought to the partnership a first-hand acquaintance with Renaissance Italy. Of course, he'd been there and stayed there, um, <coughs> and its architectural and dramatic arts. And it is more than likely that Milton was thematically inspired by Johnson's pleasure reconciled to virtue of 1618 and was aware of Johnson's presence as late as 1633 to 34 when the latter was still producing masks for the court while the former was at work on commerce. But what is now of central importance in all this is the question of Milton as um, ostensible and committed Puritan in his involvement with the mask as court entertainment. The royalist musician Henry Laws, who wrote the songs and dances for Comus, was a friend to whom he um, addressed a sonnet as the priest of Phoebus's choir as late as 1646, um, yet was also music teacher to Lady Alison uh, Edgerton, the original of the lady in Milton's Mask. Here we get a glimpse of the interconnections between the poet and the family his work was meant to celebrate, thereby interweaving court culture with high-minded Protestant ideals. <coughs> um, something which nevertheless doesn't prevent us seeing Comus himself and his stately palace as images of Caroline libertinism, um, firmly rejected in the play. Again, in line with this, we should recall that when a student at Christ College, Cambridge, itself a very Puritan uh, um, um, seat of learning uh, within the university, the young Milton went around carrying a sword and wearing long hair, mark of the cavaliers, not of the roundheads, of course. He was given the nickname of the Lady of Christ, itself suggestive of a marked feminine grace and demeanor differentiating him from the student body of the time. So whatever Milton developed into over the years, 
via his turbulent marriages and his time as Cromwell's Latin secretary, he was essentially not your straight-laced, one-track Puritan, but a complex fusion um, <clears throat> but a complex fusion of qualities stemming from both sides of the divide, the proof of which is embodied in Comus. Clearly, this complication of character was responsible, apart from anything else, for the poet's ensuing richness of viewpoint um, and work, while in literary cultural terms we get a marriage, though not without resonant tensions, of Renaissance classical myth with Protestant high ideals, as in the mask's very opening, spoken by the attendant spirit, a Neoplatonic uh, being who himself um, <coughs> marries classical Renaissance spirituality with Protestant inwardness and descends or enters. This is number nine over the page, quote number nine. Before the starry threshold of Jove's court, my mansion is, where those immortal shapes of bright aerial spirits live in spheres, in regions mild of calm and serene air. Above the smoke and stir of this dim spot, which men call earth, and with low thoughted care, confined and pestered in this pinfold here, strive to keep up a frail and feverish being unmindful of the crown that virtue gives after this mortal change to her true servants amongst the enthroned gods on sainted seats. Yet some there be that by due steps aspire to lay their just hands on that golden key that opes the palace of eternity. To such my errand is, and but for such, I would not soil these pure ambrosial weeds with the rank vapors of this sin-worn mold. <clears throat> if we look at the phraseology and concepts of this passage, we can see straight away the sources of the various expressions and ideas. The opening lines, in common with the nature of the mask, are classical, charting where the bright aerial spirits live, in sphered, just outside Jove's court, whereas as soon as we descend uh, towards Earth, the human condition and its problems enter via a more Christian context, unmindful of the crown that virtue gives after this mortal change to, to her true servants, followed by a classical reference to the enthroned gods, but a Christian one again with unsainted seats. Finally, the attendant spirit's reference to these pure ambrosial weeds, which is nothing if not classical, undergoes um, the risk in Christian terms of being soiled with the rank vapors of this sin-worn mold. Thus Milton's, thus Milton's sensibility <coughs> during the, the 1630s, his youngest years, is a decided amalgam of classical with Christian biblical and tells us a good deal about his specific cultural inheritance as well as his personal sympathies and values. As he gets older, however, and more involved in the politics of his time, becoming Cromwell's Latin secretary in 1649, things develop and change with Paradise Lost, Paradise Regained, and Samson Agonistes, which are all now predominantly Christian Hebraic. 
in spite of the last-mentioned work's partly Greek title. <clears throat> it's instructive at this point to compare Comus with Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream, a play Milton must have known well, since a magic wood is the centre of both, in which its other reality, as compared with the urban settings of Athens and Ludlow, lies at the heart of both writers' meditations on the complex relations existing between man and nature. Both woods, however, are nevertheless different from each other, simply in terms of the beings inhabiting them. Whereas Shakespeare's is the home of Oberon, Titania, and the fairies, together with the mischievous folk figure Puck, Milton's attendant spirit speaks of, in quote number 10, within the navel of this hideous wood. Immured in cypress shades, a sorcerer dwells of Bacchus and of Circe born. Great Comus, deep-skilled in all his mother's witcheries which makes it a very different and much more frightening thing altogether. As Circe's son, Comus transforms his victims into subservient animals, while Puck admittedly also turns Bottom's head into that of an ass, but only for the length of Titania's dream. In short, whatever the underlying seriousness of Shakespeare's concerns in A Midsummer Night's Dream, um, through the intertwined themes of love and the imagination, the play as a whole is much more comic and light-hearted than Milton's mask, the direct and explicit seriousness of which marks it out, as does its essentially ideological and oppositional nature. <coughs> For the opposition and conflict between the attendant spirit and his world, as against Comus and his wild wood, so phrased in the opening stage directions, pinpoint the work's value centers, which are portrayed and discussed throughout in a highly imaginative, if oppositional, manner. Indeed, the picture I'm trying to, to describe of the similarity yet ultimate difference between these two works for the stage, with only roughly 40 years between them, illustrates the great shift between the Tudor Jacobean age and that of Caroline times. It is clearly mirrored in Shakespeare's plays where even through the tragedies and beyond, what is presented and dramatized, um, however disastrous the outcome, stays firmly within and in terms of Tudor Jacobean society and its tensions. Whereas with Milton, <coughs> such tensions are now, are now ranged against each other in open confrontation and conflict, then actual warfare, such as we find in terms of the roundheads and cavaliers leading to civil war. Such an atmosphere automatically produces um, the oppositional and ideological, as is the case with regard to Blake and the French Revolution. Hence, it is not for nothing that Milton and Blake um, are, our for, are our foremost, if not only, ideological poets in how they conceive and present things of the spirit. One need only think of Satan versus God in Paradise Lost and Samson against the Philistines in Samson Agonistas, a nothing if not oppositional title, or again Blake's innocence versus experience. Uh, where it is not for nothing that the title of one of the latter's 
late inner epics is Milton, prefacing which, of course, we get the poem, And Did Those Feet in Ancient Time, in the course of which we get the line, I will not cease from mental fight. Milton, in fact, was of, was of direct concern to Blake in a way Shakespeare never was. And this disposition of mind, I would also maintain, was very much endemic to our founder, Kathleen Raine, uh, and her concept of temenus. Now, one of Milton's great features <coughs> is the way in which he reinterprets <coughs> and invests with new significance every literary genre he takes up. With the court mask, for, for example, he massively extends the concerns and boundaries of the Ben Jonson, Inigo Jones model um, that immediately came down to him, as he does, um, indeed, um, the classical elegy in Lycidas or the Greek-Roman epic in Paradise Lost. And, of course, in the, in the case of his mask, he invests it with a new and complex seriousness of purpose involving as already quoted, an attendant spirit from the starry threshold of Jove's court, whose descent as messenger and helper from above, um, then as active participator in the human world below, and finally his ascent back to the realms above, after his mission has been accomplished, gives to Milton's mask an inclusive shape and circular form which themselves possess a symbolic focus. The attendant spirit's um, final epilogue that closes the play finishes like this. This is quote number 11 on your sheets. <coughs> but now my task is smoothly done. I can fly or I can run quickly to the green earth's end where the bowed welkin slow doth bend and from thence can soar as soon to the corners of the moon. Mortals that would follow me love virtue. She alone is free. She can teach ye how to climb higher than the sphery climb, chime. Or if virtue feeble were, heaven itself would stoop to her. Now significant here for this poet's outlook is the categorization of virtue through freedom and therefore its power in being able to create an almost endless upward movement as it were, an accompanying state of grace. <clears throat> this parallels precisely the attendant spirit's downward entry in his opening prologue and returning upward progression at the end. Curiously again, or perhaps not so, the spirit's first six lines here echo the character of Shakespeare's Ariel. And indeed, The Tempest, one of the playwright's very last works would seem on reflection, I think, to be moving towards Milton's more divided world. For Prosperous Island, where almost the entire action of the drama takes place, is nevertheless constantly opposed and absentia by the Italian mainland of Milan and Naples, thereby creating a sense of a world geographically but also Uh, um, in terms of values and ethically, um, <coughs> excuse me, in opposition. Um, in other words, um, some, uh, somewhat Miltonic. Indeed, Comus, one might say, is a subtle morality play slanted towards the court and possessing vertical as well as horizontal levels of reality. 
having wedded the Johnsonian type of mask to the older allegorical interlude and pastoral drama. All this implies that Comus itself can certainly be seen as a platonic allegory of the descent and ascent of the soul uh, with the wood as life's labyrinth. Uh, quote, the perplexed paths of this drear wood, as the attendant spirit puts it, and the enchanter's stately palace opposed to the palace of eternity, where Comus is able to immobilize the lady's body, but not her mind. Thou canst not touch the freedom, note that, the freedom of my mind, as she puts it. Clearly, at the dramatic center of the mask, we get the temptation scene in which the lady is offered, then pressurized to take this cordial julep here that flames and dances in his crystal bounds. Ending with, one sip of this will bathe the drooping spirits in delight beyond the bliss of dreams. Be wise, says Comus, and taste. Um, at which point her two brothers, accompanied by the attendant spirit, disguised uh, <coughs> as the shepherd Thyrsis, enter. The situation is obviously a foretaste um, of Eve's temptation by Satan in Book 9 of Paradise Lost. The crucial difference being, however, that she succumbs, thereby precipitating uh, <coughs> the loss of Paradise, whereas the Lady of the Mask wins out. At one stage, putting her argument so convincingly that Comus himself almost succumbs. Quote Comus here, she fables not. I feel that I do fear her words set off by some superior power. And though not mortal, yet a cold shuddering dew dips me all o'er. It is the lady, likewise, who is the only one clear-eyed enough to separate the real identity of the woods from their human inhabitants, calling them, quote, the kind hospitable woods. Um, since we mustn't forget that Comus himself isn't native to them. Instead, he is really a usurping genius Loki, who, ripe and, and frolic of his full-grown age, roving the Celtic and Iberian fields, at last betakes him to this ominous wood, as Milton puts it. As opposed to uh, Sabrina, a real genius Loki of the River Severn, whose beneficent powers are able to overturn those of Comus and free the lady from the marble venom seat in which he has imprisoned her. <coughs> Thus the mask presents us with two opposed concepts of nature, which are dramatized and made to confront each other during its course. In sum, at this point, Milton's use of the court mask is committed, ideological, didactic. Whatever the richness of its imagery and imagination, and to this degree is on the Puritan wavelength. For in narrative terms, what we get is a story of trial via temptation and triumph, where the lady as virtue was tried by Comus's blandishments and threats, neither of which proved to have any hold over her. Thus Milton, unlike Johnson, is not concerned with the formal virtues of an idealized court, uh, whereas Comus himself puts it, beauty is nature's brag and must be shown in courts, at feasts, and high solemnities, but with internalized virtues like honor, truth, and purity, 
and in this he is meticulously Puritan. Nevertheless, we mustn't at all forget that, strictly speaking, Comus belongs to pre-Puritan England and its preceding mask tradition, so that the clash between Comus as cavalier um, and the lady and her brothers as Puritan can be seen as mirroring a similar clash in Milton's own mind um, and as being fought out there. Having said this, it is vital to point out that Milton is not a lyrical poet. He needs stylized and distancing forms in which to work and give expression to what personally absorbs him. For example, mask, pastoral, or epic. Indeed, what strikes one about the major poems of the 1645 volume of his work in which Comus appeared is the great delicacy and color of their imaginative worlds. The poet's mind is so stocked with mythological figures and events that they form the poem's staple. He knows how to use, evoke, and vivify them as with a tapestry, his world seemingly shaped out of classical and biblical law, emblems, stories, myths, prophecies, music, philosophy, and learning. Finally, um, <coughs> for the lady and her two brothers, Milton's mask enacts a kind of rite de passage to use Arnold van, uh, van Gennep's term, whereby all three children are portrayed as being on the edge of puberty and then becoming separated and thereby isolated in life's wood and undergo a kind of initiation as a result of which they take the first steps towards adulthood, being transformed along the way until with the help of the attendant spirit and Sabrina, they ultimately reach Ludlow and via another initiation are reintegrated with their family and society in general. As against this underlying theme of the play, we find right at the beginning that Comus himself is celebrating quite other rites. This is quote number 12. Come let us, come let us our rites begin. Tis only daylight that makes sin, which these dun shades will ne'er report. Hail goddess of nocturnal sport, dark veiled Cotito, to whom the secret flame of midnight torches burns. Comus is therefore quite simply the most complex and intellectual of masks subtly conceived and presented. Now to go from, <coughs> from Comus to Paradise Lost is to leave a localized domain of Wildwood, River Seven and Ludlow Town plus President's Castle for an epic and cosmic world of more general and universal attributes. Nevertheless, certain themes and preoccupations are carried over, as already suggested, from the earlier to the later work. First and foremost, uh, the central temptation scene of the Lady and Comus to that of Eve and Satan in Book Nine of the poem. Then much earlier on in Book Five, the angel um, Raphael comes down to paradise to warn Adam in advance of Satan's approach, um, recounted in uh, Book Four, which, although very different, parallels the descent of the attendant spirit. However, unlike Comus, Satan is the successful protagonist of Paradise Lost, just as Christ is of Paradise Regained. For it is Satan, 
Um, after all, who causes paradise to be lost by successfully tempting Eve, um, then following her, of course, Adam. Um, and the epic is basically about this, the temptation and fall of man um, via Satan as evil. He is therefore bound to be the poem's chief actor, and he does most things, rules in hell, flies to Eden, and uh, uh, um, corrupts Eve, returning then to hell. By comparison, Adam and Eve are relatively passive, with neither the Messiah nor Raphael or Gabriel being instigators in the poem like Satan. So that as Paradise Lost, um, the epic is substantially about Satan, who stands at its center, even if he is only actually present in books 1, 2, 4, and 9 and 10, and indirectly present in books um, 5 to 6. However, Satan's role in Milton's epic and our view of him as a character change substantially during the course of the poem. First, he is rebel angel, proud and heroic. Second, he becomes the wily tempter, non-heroic and evil, bringing about mankind's downfall out of malice and spiteful revenge. Third, as a result of his second role, he arrives back in hell and is himself transformed into a serpent. Something distasteful, of course. Satan's character, therefore, declines throughout um, the progress of the epic so that Milton clearly means us to keep all three aspects and roles before us. To concentrate on Satan as arch-rebel, um, proud and demonic, as did the Romantics, um, to the exclusion of all else, however, is completely unmiltonic. Even if the figure of Satan... <coughs> had most influence via this from Blake, Byron, and Shelley onwards. Certainly Blake's statement about Milton from The Marriage of Heaven and Hell has some basis in fact when we remember Milton's role in the parliamentarian revolution against the monarchy and that Satan is Paradise Lost's most compelling figure in comparison with whom both God and Messiah are relatively pale creations. But this doesn't at all mean that Milton's fundamental sympathies um, are with Satan, not even, as Blake uh, uh, suggests, unconsciously. Again, even if Milton does show admiration for Satan, this is restricted to the early books of the poem, to Satan, namely, in his heroic role. And even here, in Book 2, lines 5 to 6, we find Satan exalted, sat by merit raised to that bad eminence. And although he is a rebel against God, he himself is also a monarch of hell, quote, with monarchical pride. Um, with the Romantics, nevertheless, the figure of Satan becomes anti-establishment. And characteristic in its cut-off, suffering, proud aspects of the new type of alienated artist or outsider. Um, to be aligned with Prometheus and Faust and the, and the Romantic poets themselves, of course. Thus Milton and his work, um, as now discovered, uh, possess um, a forward link with Romanticism and individualism of the utmost importance. In Paradise Lost, there is no definite sense of place, yet a definite sense of different atmospheres that circumscribe um, areas spatially and qualitatively. 
so that the reality becomes both extraterrestrial as well as internal. And this seems to have been taken up by the Romantics when writing their own internal epics, Hyperion, Prometheus Unbound, Jerusalem. To recap, Blake's statement then is a brilliant, essentially romantic insight in which he can be seen fitting Milton into his own system of opposites. Of course, it has some basis in fact. Um, in, um, in that most readers feel that Satan is Paradise Lost's most compelling figure. Finally, Satan would seem to symbolize different forms of evil, external and internal. In the early books of Milton's epic, representing pride, self-love and revolt, in which he functions as the Lucifer figure of myth. Um, however, in standing for temptation via the serpent, he appeals to and incorporates something inside Eve appearing to her first of all in a dream, hence a psychological force. And in this role, he is more sinister and repellent, losing all his previously heroic praise. Paradise Lost, one mustn't forget, contains two rebellions, Satan's, of course, but also man's, uh, which is linked to the first. Since man's first disobedience, Milton's phrase, is propelled into action by Satan's temptation of Eve, soon to be joined by Adam and is defined as such. Quote number 13, who first seduced them to that foul revolt? The infernal serpent, he it was whose guile stirred up with envy and revenge, deceived the mother of mankind, what time his pride had cast him out from heaven with all his host of rebel angels. <coughs> what all this then results in is the main underlying theme of the poem and highly characteristic of Milton and his cultural ambience, namely, loss of liberty, as the angel Michael makes clear to Adam in the work's final book. That's quote number 14. To whom thus Michael, justly thou abhorst that son who on the quiet state of men such trouble brought, affecting to subdue rational liberty, Yet know withal, since thy original lapse, true liberty is lost, which always with right reason dwells, twinned, and from her hath no individual being. Reason in man obscured or not obeyed, immediately inordinate desires and upstart passions catch the government from reason, and to servitude reduce man till then free. In short, Paradise Lost is as much about the inner man as about theology and myth. And that brings us to the poem in terms of its being a, fundamental, a, a fundamentally Protestant epic, inward and dynamic, assertive and marked by conflict. One only has to think by contrast of Dante, whose work is allegorical, uh, visionary, pellucid, operating within a static worldview. With Milton, on the other hand, we get a portrayal and assertion of power against established hierarchies at several levels, even in poetry itself, where, quote Milton, things unattempted yet in prose or rhyme will apparently be given expression. And with Dante still in mind, Milton's epic is much more active and strenuous, unfinished and onward going, 
um, as it were, from the fall of Satan to Adam and Eve's exit from the garden, with everything moving forward uh, through conflict, victory, and defeat. Indeed, one may argue that apart from books one to three recounting Satan's epic journey from heaven down to hell and on to Eden, itself heroic in its way, the temptation and fall of man constituting the poem's heartland is basically more dramatic with morality play overtones leading to a move away from an actual, if mythical, paradise to a subjective one inside man himself. The so-called, quote, paradise within of book 12. In fact, a move towards the Protestant, the introverted, the romantic, um, something which the poet clearly associated with his growing blindness, as in his address to the light at the beginning of book three. This is quote number 15. But thou revisits not these eyes that roll in vain to find thy piercing ray, and find no dawn. So thick a drop serene hath quenched their orbs, or, dyed, or dim suffusion veiled. So much the rather thou, celestial light, shine inward, and the mind through all her powers irradiate. There plant eyes, all mist from thence, purge and disperse. That I, might, that I may see and tell of things invisible to mortal sight. A different kind of breakthrough is advertised at the very outset of, of, uh, of the poem in Milton's piece on the verse, where he argues for blank verse as opposed to what he terms, quote, the troublesome and modern bondage of rhyming, which thus becomes the formal technical counterpart to his loss of liberty concerns. Having said this, it is finally imperative to try and categorize our poet's imaginative and cultural world in a slightly more specific way, since only then will we be able to see his work in some kind of perspective against that of his immediate predecessors, contemporaries, and successors. Shakespeare, for instance, writing throughout the latter part of Elizabeth's reign and the first half of James I, is exploring uh, um, among other things, the tensions within Tudor Jacobean society, which especially and more so under the last Tudor monarch and bearing the defeat of the Armada in mind of 1588, expresses a feeling of unity and nationalism via the crown. Yet the court of Elizabeth was already in some sense commercial um, by virtue of the courtiers often acting as already briefly mentioned merchant adventurers, for example, Raleigh, Drake, Martin Frobisher, or becoming knighted because of such roles, with the result that one can begin to speak of a titled bourgeoisie, uh, with the court itself certainly becoming more middle class in its interests, if aristocratic and absolutist in its ideology. In a similar way, one might argue Shakespeare both in lifestyle and plays, exhibits the same combination. Um, as compared, say, with the aristocratic Thomas Wyatt, Henry Howard, and Philip Sidney, near contemporaries. Spencer, however, essentially middle class in origin and a major early influence on Milton, is writing in The Fairy Queen about knightly heroes who are Puritan uh, platonic in outlook and behavior. Uh, indeed, Milton himself, middle or burger class, 
by origin, yet aristocratic by leaning like Spencer, was contemplating something similar to the fairy queen apparently in subject matter before coming down in favor of Paradise Lost's theme. Finally, in sum, we can say that under Elizabeth, court and city were in relatively close harmony. As mirrored in Johnson, Shakespeare, and other playwrights, um, that, Elizabethan, that Elizabethan literature was a product of cultural synthesis rather than total nationhood, and that this is what we essentially find in Shakespeare's unified world. When we come later to Dunn and the metaphysicals, however, we find, to quote Dunn himself on this, that the world is now, quote, all is in pieces, all coherence gone something which points much more to T.S. Eliot's dissociation of sensibility than anything in Milton, whose poetic universe is nothing if not unified, from the Nativity Ode and the other early poems onward. Indeed, Eliot himself, in his 1931 essay on Dunn, says that, quote Eliot now, in Dunn there is a manifest fissure between thought and sensibility, a chasm which in his poetry he bridged in his own way. Of course, in this he seems to be anticipating Cartesian dualism, whereas Milton, while coming after the Elizabethan Shakespearean synthesis, seems rather to join up 16th with 17th century humanism, the early poems being a mixture of classical Elizabethan and Puritan Renaissance elements held in solution. And this seems to have been his response to Cambridge's outdated medievalism while he was studying there. The concern with universals, however, is itself humanist, with the emphasis on providence being Puritan instead of a person-to-person -person relationship to God, which is a relic of medievalism. It is therefore characteristic of Milton that he shows no interest whatsoever in the hunger of the soul for God, such as we still get in Dunn and Herbert. And indeed, his entire theological Landscape requires careful etching in, but this would require a separate occasion. Thank you very much. <laughs>